Hello, welcome to the Book of Dance. Nathan Robertson, I'm going to be your host. Joined, no longer your humble and obedient ghost. It's November. Happy November, everybody. And uh, this is uh, part two of our discussion. It's me, it's Jake, it's Andrew Henry. How are you doing, Andrew Henry? I'm doing well. You want to know who Andrew Henry is? Listen to last week's episode. Uh, he's a guy that's here. We're, we're going to continue our discussion of Ray Bradbury and his short stories. We've been counting down five of them, so... The last time we did two, and now we're going to do the last three. So let's jump right back in. Guys, what's the next story, Andrew? Next up is The Velt. This the was Velt. my, this my is first a, interaction a, with Brad, Bradbury. First a lot, of people's, story a lot of people's first interaction. Well-anthologized well story. I think, Jake, you said you'd, you recognized it. You'd yeah, and this was the only one of the ones that we read that I instantly knew, oh, yeah, I know this story. I've read this story before. Yeah, it's I one remember of those. reading it. There's probably yeah. a lot of people. It has a title that's not, it's a good title, but it's not an evoc- It's not one that instantly, if you've been a while, makes you think of the story. But I bet I bet there's more than one person, if they read this, would be like, oh, yeah, I remember this from freshman high school, my comp book added or something like that. You know, It's, yep. one, it's one of those. It, it's in a lot of anthologies. Mm-hmm. So George and Lydia Hadley have a modern automated home, and they've got two kids, and the kids Peter are- and Wendy. Is it Peter and Wendy? <laughs> it is Peter and Wendy. Yeah. Have grown increasingly obsessed with the nursery, which is telepathic, reads their thoughts, projects scenes that they enjoy. It becomes their surrogate mother and father. They want to spend all their time there. And there's this growing sense of dread, especially in the wife. Lydia is concerned. She's hearing things and seeing things around in the nursery that concern her. And her husband is a little more nonchalant about it until she presses him. She's like, you know, something something is wrong here. They've been seeing this one scene from the African Velt from the, you know, for, for a month or more. And there's lions. They hear lions roaring. They smell lions in the house. And there's a, always this scream that's... They hear, yeah, they hear <laughs> screams. When the be? kids are playing in the nursery, they hear screams. And whenever they come in and check it out, there's always lions in the distance eating something. So there's these, there's all these little, all these little elements that are unnerving. They can't put their finger on it. And because the room responds telepathically to whoever's in it, you can't see what the children see when they're in it necessarily. You can only see remnants of it. You know, the... The feeling in the modern world of we're being replaced by machines or doing everything for us. And the parents say, we're going to shut the house off for a month. And the daughter's first reaction is, you mean I have to tie my own shoes? Right. (laughs) And we're like, what? (laughs) Don't you people have Velcro? Where have you been? (laughs) My shoes don't have shoelaces. Get some Toms. Mm -hmm. Slip them on. Um, But that sense of alienation and the way that it strained the marriage but that the kids become completely disassociated from their parents. When the parents decide to turn the house off... To the kids, the parents, their parents are trying to kill the house, yeah. are trying to kill the nursery. Trying to kill their surrogate mm-hmm. parents. And so, uh, spoiler. <laughs> well. A big surprise. <laughs> dad goes all dad and decides he's just going to... Put his foot down. Put you know his foot down are. and rampage around the house and pull fuses and shut things off. Gives a nice Bradbury speech about it. We'll, we'll we're going to get on the plane this afternoon and go on vacation and we're to Iowa. Right. We're... This technology will never exist because it's Iowa. When they bring Dr. Exposition in there to be like, I'm a psychologist, and here's what's going on with (laughs) your children. Something's wrong with your children. They need to come see me every week for the next year. You should turn the room off immediately. And then they'll be fine. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And then mom, who's been the one driving this whole thing, goes all mom after Mm. dad goes all dad and is like, oh, honey, let them them, have five minutes in the room. Just a couple minutes. Dad finally relents. Kids go down to the nursery and then they need to go get them and they're not coming out. So they go in and then the door clicks behind them and then the lion lions come they scream and they recognize that scream oh oh <laughs> and then the next thing we know the kids are sitting there having a picnic in Dr. The, exposition the and Dr. exposition up. shows back up and curtain falls <laughs> <laughs> I, I love this story. I mean, it's it's kind of cheesy now, and it's I think it's one of his clunkiest. The clunkiest one of the five that we read in terms of the way that he's. You can tell it's a young man trying to make it all work. They keep saying they keep setting things up that are really obvious. Like he finds his wallet yeah. in the nursery. It smells up. like lions, and there's blood on it. And it's been chewed. And, and there's, there's saliva two or three it. times where they're like, "If someone tampered with the machine, could the things actually hurt us?" <laughs> well, no, probably not. Probably not. <laughs> 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 Not too subtle the setups in no. this one. It's very reminiscent of the both bad and good Twilight Zone, where Rod Serling's just like, "I will have the characters tell you what the meaning of this story is." And <laughs> but I love it. I'm I don't mean to make fun of it. A 
it's easy to make fun of it 50 years after the fact when some right. of this stuff has come. When, you when know. they've they've beaten this horse into jelly. Yeah. Right, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Ray Bradbury, this was much fresher uh, at a certain point. B, it really does work. Many, many, many great horror stories have the theme of a bad or weak authority figure who just doesn't get it. And it's a very relatable theme. We've all been there. We Little kids see something. Dad and mom don't get it. Husband doesn't get it. It's usually doofus dad, which isn't necessarily, you know, I don't support doofus dads, but it's a, it's a, good, uh, it's a good story conceit that the authority figure who's supposed to be the one that protects you, who's supposed to be the one that sees it, is the one person that just doesn't get it while everything around him is being undermined. Gets and, it? Yeah. Just too late yeah and then, and then they get it just too late and they get they get their just reward so uh i don't know it's a fun story and it is prophetic i mean we have alexa now we have we live in this world we don't have telepathic lions that can eat us thankfully yet but uh elon, they're coming in japan elon probably Musk is working on it yeah, <laughs> yeah, in japan i was just watching a, a thing last night about it wasn't a ted talk but it was like it was by some guy who gave a famous TED talk, and it was like the 15 minute version of his hour long TED talk, and it just showed up on as recommended in YouTube. And sometimes you just can't help but click on the recommended things in YouTube. And uh, so I did. And he was talking about this whole very thing. He was right. talking about millennials mm-hmm. and how no generation in history has been more privileged, has had things handed to them, has never has had such bad parenting where they've never been disciplined and have raised to be entitled. And so they end up hating their moms and dads for it, not having a, any ability to to succeed in the workplace. And and so he's talking to, I guess, companies because he's saying the problem is, you know, where the rubber finally meets the road. It's been pushed down the line so far that it's now the responsibility of corporations to take these these yeah, I've, tw- I've seen this twenty five year old children and teach them the basics of having normal relationships with people and being able to have patience for results that come down the line and aren't instantaneous gratification because they've all been trained by dopamine right. <laughs> response with their phones and with Alexa and, and whatever else. It's what all these these old science fiction guys, you know, they get the principle and they don't get the, the tech because it's just so far out of but the tech is never the point. But the tech's never the point, and it's easy to write them off because, huh, idiot, you put brass uh, tubes and springs and sprockets inside. It's going to be the- fiber optics, dude, <laughs> or Bluetooth, right? <laughs> and then you loaded them up into the rocket. Right. <laughs> Uh, when George and Lydia Hadley are talking in bed, she says, well, we've given the children everything they ever wanted. Is this our reward? Secrecy? Disobedience? Uh, yeah. Yep. And then uh, <laughs> the response is, uh, who was it who said, children are carpets, they should be stepped on occasionally? <laughs> we've never lifted a hand. They're insufferable, let's admit it. They come and go when they like. They treat us as if we were offspring. They're spoiled and we're spoiled. Yeah. And so between the two of them, they come to an accurate diagnosis of what's going on. We've given them everything they've wanted. They're spoiled. They're insufferable. We've failed to discipline them. We're spoiled. We're mm-hmm. soft. And dad's solution is, tomorrow I pull the plug. Right, right. What a dad solution, by the way. A, a, totally, <laughs> a totally dad solution. But he caves. Right. If he had, if he had actually followed through... And kept that. They would have survived. It's the dad who makes a threat and then immediately turns around and backs off of it. Well, and it's the mom who says, "Just five minutes." It is classic human psych. I mean, Bradbury does get it. We all reckon we've all had that moment. It is their cultivated softness that does, in fact, do them in. When they when they pull the plug and turn the nursery off, the the children are in hysterics. And it was funny. One one word jumped out. They screamed and pranced and threw things. (laughs) (laughs) They yelled and sobbed and swore and jumped at the furniture. And the idea of they screamed and pranced it's just like such a such a spoiled mm-hmm. ah. and even dr exposition's great who's just like we'll lick this in a year we'll take care of it we've got this your children are neurotic and homicidal and <laughs> it'll be great we'll just have right well see what happens is normally they have a nice outlet here but what it's done with your kids is it's Turned channeled in. them into deeper and deeper forms of aggression and now they're homicidal maniacs but we can solve this if right. i <laughs> and if bradbury was presenting that guy as the van helsing of the story that would be dumb but actually that guy's just the third lion meal i mean these these characters are all idiots which i love <laughs> so. you know yeah he's, he's he's that guy is in one sense completely clueless um they're walking out and he's like oh what's this and picks up a bloody scarf <laughs> off right. the floor of the nursery and says, is this yours? Right. And George is like, no, it belongs to my wife. <laughs> it's like, oh, what? That's weird. Why is there a bloody scarf in here? 
Right. But yeah, the you know the idea of these parents recognizing what's happening, trying to intervene, failing because of their own weaknesses and their prior failures have prepared them to fail here. And they do. And then the kids use the tech to kill the parents. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, I read some goosebumps when I was a kid too. Yes. <laughs> but I got off them pretty quick. <laughs> Give me the long distance knuckles. I, I, so I... So I didn't... I Shared didn't, experience, that's what we have. I didn't like Goosebumps very much. <laughs> um, Crap, that's where it is. Well, I mean, I think I, I read two or three of them, and it was like, it just it just didn't... There are stories that are supposed to be scary and supposed to be occult and weird, and but they didn't... They never really got a lot of traction. But my mom said, oh, you should read The Velt, and pulled out her Ray Bradbury and gave it to me, and I read it. Good mom. And I, oh. I was sitting, sitting there thinking... Yikes. Mm. <laughs> Mom, why'd you have me read this? <laughs> <laughs> I wish somebody would have done that with me. Right. <laughs> well, the, human, human nature is always what's scary. I mean, the thing about Dracula that's scary is not that he has a big black cape and that he crawls up walls. What's scary about Dracula is that he's a predator, and we all know human beings who are predators, and it's something that's relatable, and it's a fear founded on something that we actually should and are scared of. And that's true of every good horror story. And th- that's where Goosebumps fails, I think, is it's like, ah, oh, it's a mummy, or ah, it's being buried alive, or ah. But a story like this, even as simplistic, even as we can make fun of some of the details, it's founded on relatable, recognizable human weaknesses and human psychology. And we all know that there's kids that would kill their parents if they could get away with it. We all know that there's parents that would raise such kids. We all know the parents. We know the kids. We could all name names right now. Yep. <laughs> there, are, there are two hands up because one of us isn't very self-aware. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, this is a this is a really common thing and I I do know I experienced this to a certain extent, but I know lots of other kids that from broken homes when they the, the there's the parent that is saddled with the responsibility and the other parent thinks that that gives them license or liberty to have no responsibility and to just be the fun cool parent that never disciplines their kid and just sort of goes from being mom or dad to being the cool uncle or the cool aunt or whatever. And so those kids, what they do is visiting with that other parent, visiting with mom or visiting with dad is really just, hey, I get to go play and have a lot of fun. And mom or dad is thinking, yeah, I screwed something up and I'm running from responsibility. And But hey, that's awesome because now I just get to be the cool one that you know my kid loves, but never really works out that way. What ends up happening is you're trying to buy the love of the kid. The kid's just trying to use you to get whatever it is. To Play go more sp- Mortal Kombat and drink more Dr. Pepper. Yeah, to go uh, going over to dad's house is going into the nursery and locking myself in the room with my uh, gaming systems and movies. And, and dad or mom or whoever is just the conduit and the second that they step in the way. Yeah, then it's like die. Right. Go away. <laughs> Those parents, they always think that they're going, they're going to win by by buying their kids and they always end up losing. They always end up losing. But that that exact thing, what what Bradbury does here, that's that's how it plays out. And you see kids, those will be the those are always the kids and I see them in our church right now. And there's one in particular I'm I'm thinking of and trying to not be too specific in the details. But you know, there's a time when and it's always hard for the other parent. It's always super hard for the other parent and super frustrating because yeah, the kid wants to go be at at mom's house or at dad's house or wherever and just be locked in the room with Swiss cake rolls and video games, hates the disciplinarian, but that table's going to turn real quick. Mm-hmm. There will come a time and the tables will be flipped. Eight or nine times out of 10, it will be the enabling parent that that kid says, I don't want to have anything to do with you. You spent my entire childhood trying to buy me off. And I'm not that cheap. I'm not that cheap. You actually have to. I was, but I'm not anymore. (laughs) Right. Swiss rolls ain't doing it for me anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And we've all, it's a, you can find YouTube compilations of redneck parents that get mad and smash the TV. It is, it is a total trope and something we've all seen. And I, the parent that never disciplines, never disciplines, never disciplines. And then there's finally that explosion where they're just going to discipline. They're going to smash the TV or throw the iPod pad to the ground. And then five minutes later, they're going to. Buy a, buy, new one. buy a new one. And it just happens all the time. Guess what? When you smash the TV or the iPad or the iPod, then suddenly you have the work of actually parenting your kid in front of you that you have been running from this entire time. Not just the cathartic parenting moment. Guess what? Your kid, you've turned them into you. 
that's all that you're raging against. And this, the instant that you have to deal with you, the, the instant you try to deal with them that way, you realize that you're dealing with yourself and you won't do it. You will never follow through because your whole life has been consistently giving yourself over to your pleasures and your weaknesses. And avoiding the work. And avoiding the work and the responsibility of being a grown-up adult and, an, and, a, and a mother or a father. You will never follow through with it. It will not happen. And that's the way it always works out. Mm. Yeah. Go on YouTube and look up. You can find compilations of videos of, of this exact scenario playing out. People think it's funny and they find recordings. Yeah, dad. Yeah, the yeah. one where the dad takes all of his son's video games and lays them out in the yard and runs them over oh, with, with the mower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> People love that stuff. And it is fun. <laughs> <laughs> I like watching those videos too. But <laughs> uh, it, no, listen, I, am, I, I want to still make space for there to be dads yeah, and no. moms oh, sure, sure, that sure. like yeah, yeah, yeah. that do that thing and that see it as a necessary part of their repentance of I have failed I have failed my son I have failed my daughter I'm gonna run over the video games with a lawnmower and I'm gonna fight myself just as hard and yeah I may go out in, in the next year and buy another gaming system but I'm planting my flag and I'm going to fight and right. I'm going to I'm going to stick to it. it. Repentance is full of messy baby steps. It's and, and sometimes there's you big that? dramatic stuff all, that all the way you will never do it. Now right. all the way. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mean, if he, it's better to not be an alcoholic and not need a big dramatic intervention. But if someone's all the way down the line where they're an alcoholic and suddenly there needs to be a big dramatic intervention where they had a blackout, you, you can't you can't not do it. Sometimes the work is dramatic and big and sometimes there's that catharsis and sometimes people make funny YouTube videos about it. But then there has to be the follow through. Touch with fire. Moving along. So, touch with fire. Touch with fire. Ask, are we Christians? <laughs> Which I actually didn't remember being in there till I reread it this week. So there's two retired insurance salesmen, Mr. Fox and Mr. Shaw, and they've come up with a theory that there are certain kinds of people going through the world trying to get themselves murdered. A very Bradburyan um, theory, by the way. His stories are full of at three o'clock, that's when everyone dies and something wicked and just yep. like those kinds it's of always the little factoids. Right, the little factoids, which I'm sure he just made up from thin air, but they they always ring true and are some of my favorite things that he does. So these guys have come up with the idea that there are certain people trying to get themselves murdered and then they're wrestling with the question of, should we do anything about it? If we actually know this, if we can recognize this in people, do we need to do anything about it? So they find this woman named Mrs. Shrike. <laughs> you know, like strike and shriek and like yep. it's all like harsh words and sounds. Also the name of a uh, bird that... Yep. <laughs> yeah, is obnoxious. He liked his uh, allegorical Dickensian names. Nightshade. Nightshade. <laughs> Mr. Dark, for crying out loud. Yeah. Mr. Cougar. Mr. Cougar and Mr. Dark, yeah. I mean, I think that, that was an amazing name, Cougar and Dark's Pandemonium Shadow Show. Oh, yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> it's I don't, awesome. awesome. <laughs> don't have any problem with that. Not complaining, but yes. And so they're talking about Mr. Shrike, and Fox asks, are we, you know, Shaw says, we can't really intervene here. We got, we got better things to do. And Fox's question is, are we Christians? Do right. we let her subconsciously feed herself to the lions, or do we convert her? And Shaw's like, what do you mean, convert her? Mm -hmm. And Fox is just like, save her life. Let her know what's really going on. Try to find a way to get her help. And so it's the question of how do you intervene and help in the life of a person who doesn't want to be helped? But the way that they describe Mrs. Shrike and her life and this environment, blazing hot day in the city. These are two elderly men. One of them walks with a cane. And she is like a freight train of a woman. You know? And these are guys, when they, they're going to go up the stairs in the tenement, they say, well, it's okay, we'll stop on every landing. And yeah. rest. Yeah. To rest, yeah. Yeah, these are these are not spring chickens. These guys don't have a lot of strength left. And they take on this work of like trying to communicate to this lady what's, what's going on. But this, I had my high school students read this story because the description of the temperatures and colors and textures of things in this story was, I think, some of Bradbury's best. Yeah, it's, it's all uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. And it really makes you it really makes me uncomfortable when yeah. I read it. A dumpy woman stood at the top of the porch stairs, you know, jamming a plump hand in her purse. She sees some crumpled dollar bills, plunged down the steps brutally and set off down the street in a charge. You know, mm -hmm. this is a lady who's just like just nasty all mm -hmm. the time. When they come into the apartment building, they're trying to find out where she lives, and they ask this kid who's walking by, they're like, uh, we're looking for the lady who gives the door that awful slam when she leaves. And he's like, oh, 
Mrs. Shrike. You know? yeah. Everybody in the building knows immediately who he is. Like, we're looking for the lady that slams the door real hard. Oh, yeah. I love that they look at each other like, seriously? Her name's Shrike? <laughs> yeah. Nice that is this kid just, is he this... wasn't unself-aware about that. Are you, are, you pulling, are you pulling my leg, kid? <laughs> yeah. Oh, look. There's actually a name on the mailbox that says Shrike. But the description, she goes to the butcher shop and she's just verbally abusing the butcher, mm-hmm. accusing him of trying to cheat her and all this stuff. And Fox and Shaw come in they look behind the counter and the butcher is standing there at the counter serene talking to her holding a meat axe in his hand and his hand is clenching and unclenching and clenching and unclenching <laughs> as he talks to this lady because he just wants to reach over the counter and just end her <laughs> um you know they're convinced they've found a very very clear test case they've never intervened before but they've observed a number of other cases and in like half of them or more the person has ended up murdered so they're pretty confident in their thesis and they decide to chance it and try to talk to her so Mm -hmm. they find her apartment building they find her apartment they go upstairs they're standing outside her door listening and then accidentally open the front door of her apartment and end up thrust you know it's like the curtain suddenly opens up and they're stuck on stage they're thrust into this interaction with her at a time in a way they didn't really intend they're not prepared and it goes terribly <laughs> really terribly yeah. um she's on the phone she's yammering on the phone the radio's playing loudly there's a thermometer on the wall and it's climbing to the dreaded temperature of 92 yes. degrees <laughs> where murders happen where murders happen and she stares at them while she finishes her phone conversation and takes a whole minute to do it or however long it is mm-hmm. and they just stand there with their hats in their hands and then she ends the phone call and it's, what do you want? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not buying. What are you selling? Make your pitch. Come on. <laughs> yeah, this was this was a study in, in active versus, versus passive voice from my high school students <laughs> in writing class. Like when you read a paragraph, the woman stood at the wall phone, saliva flying from her mouth at an incredible rate. She showed all of her large white teeth chunking off her monologue, nostrils flared, a vein in her wet forehead ridged up pumping, her free hand flexing and unflexing itself. Her eyes were clenched shut as she yelled. Yeah. It's just like <laughs> uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But my, my students would use these really lame, lame verbs. Everything was weak. Everything was just like, okay, give me some intensity. Read this page. It's all intensity. It's just it's just nonstop intensity. It's like the city. It's like the train going by and doors slamming and people shouting and horns honking yeah. and it's hot mm-hmm. and it just makes me all sweaty and uncomfortable. And very glad that we live in a time with air conditioning. Right. Oh, man. <laughs> That's what I... Oh, yeah. man. <laughs> you have thoughts as you go through this. Man, has air conditioning made us less violent? I bet it has. <laughs> yeah. How many murders has air conditioning prevented? Probably quite a few. I mean, <laughs> I think this is a good example of a... I don't want to say a dumb premise, but this is... I don't even want to say it's the weakest premise of the five, but it's a premise that I could see some stupid high school sophomore. You know, sophomore writing a story about and it being the dumbest thing ever. Bradbury, by sheer force of will, makes it maybe my favorite of the five that we read, you know, just but but it's a virtuoso performance of a melody that in anyone else's hands could just be really trite and really lame. The Velt. You can. He doesn't even do that great a job of telling the story of the Velt, but it's just a good story. This story, you have to be Ray Bradbury to even pull this off. There's a million bad versions of this story, and there's one good version, and he wrote the good version of this story. You know yeah. what I mean? When they when they try to explain to Mr. Shrike why they're there, the reason they came, you know, it's it's an exercise in impotence. Like mm-hmm. yeah. they're so embarrassed of their thesis, and like, well, we're insurance salesmen, and we uh, had this idea, and we we watched, and we proved and, it, and and uh, <laughs> kind a, of a number of them died, and we think you know, there's this subconscious conscious thing, you know, when it's hot or life's going badly, out of a job, don't have enough money, or we have migraines, or, you know, we, we sort of subconsciously, and, and she's listening to this whole thing, and her eyes are getting narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower, and they finally finish, and she says, and you came here, you've been watching me, <laughs> and just like, she just gets furious, I'll throw you out, I'll throw you out, she's freaking and clenching her fists, and she just attacks them, Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's, it's really funny. She's swearing at them and all this stuff, and then she finally starts shouting at Mr. Fox and calling him old maid, old maid. <laughs> right, which is the one that really... And that, like, really gets him until, you know, she's just screeching at him, and he clobbers her with his cane. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the two guys drag themselves out of the apartment, like, on the edge of... Fox is like, I almost murdered her. I was almost the one. Right. You know, he he has been the, enti- the entire story an 
outside observer mm-hmm. of the phenomenon, you know, watching it, describing it, trying to understand it, trying to predict. And then he gets sucked into it and finds out he could be the person who kills, mm-hmm. which it's clear he wasn't, he hadn't really considered before. He <laughs> right. was not prepared for that. Um no, um, well, I've I've spent a lot of years in customer service, and this story is so relatable in terms of when you have that situation where you have to sell, sell a bill of goods to somebody, and they are simply not buying, and it is your job. You cannot hang up on this person. I did it over the phone. You cannot stop selling this bill. You are, you, they are going to be the ones to hang up. They are going to be the ones to end this. You are just going to keep pressing forward, and you're going to be pleasant, and you're going to be polite no matter what, because if you don't, you'll lose your job. You cannot respond to this person in the human way that you want to respond. Meanwhile, they're ugly, they're nasty, they're angry, they're questioning, they're cajoling, they're whatever they are. But you you are, in some sense... You're um, the butcher. What's that? You're the butcher. You're the butcher. You got yeah. the meat cleaver under the... Under the table. Under the table, but you're You're not allowed com- to show it. You're not allowed to show it, and you're very composed and very... Right. Responding very coolly and some of our best customer service reps were the ones that would hit the mute button say ah that stupid horrible person and then take the mute (laughs) ah yes well i'm sorry to hear about that mrs jones and (laughs) you have to admire someone that's able to actually be a good enough actor to just slide back and forth between those things but i definitely feel mr fox's pain and you know everybody that's worked customer service long enough has those moments where you You deal with customers they're just unbelievable right and you're dealing with one after another another after another eventually you're going to have a moment where you accidentally laugh at someone or you say something that you shouldn't have said it just it will happen if you do the job long enough and it is and it is that feeling of oh i just hit her with my cane it's me you know i i as, as much as i exercise control over this situation as 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 good as i may be at it i ultimately it's going to be out of my hands with some of this stuff with angry people my my manager always used to say anger is a drug and when people are on that high you will not talk them out of it. You cannot, you know, don't try. It is impossible. Nothing you say will work. They're stoned. And it's a good way to think about it because that fire just feeds itself. And you have to understand that when dealing with these people, these men are impotent. And it makes perfect sense that they're impotent because of course they're impotent because that's how this sort of a woman, that's how her soul works. Yeah. And the final story is? The final story is the town where no one got off. So touch with the fire and the town where no one got off are both about self-discovery. When we were we're talking about goosebumps earlier. I was listening to your Something Wicked This Way Comes Part 2 this morning on the drive-in, and I think goosebumps got discussed briefly. What I found that I didn't like about goosebumps that's different from Bradbury is in goosebumps, the whole point is the twist. Right. And the mm-hmm. twist often is stupid. Right. Yep. And in Bradbury, the point is never the twist. It's the idea. The point is the whole story leading up to the twist. It's the concept. Yep. And so when the twist comes in Bradbury, I'm like, ah, that one didn't go great. Oh, well, still love the story. But it doesn't matter. I think yeah. The Belt is the perfect example of that because even when I was a kid and I read it, I was like, gee, I wonder what the screams are that they're hearing. I gee, know. I wonder what's going to happen. You know, the wife's <laughs> like, those screams sound familiar. And the husband's like, do they? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, if, the, if you're only- Gee, point, why is my wallet here chewed up? Probably not because what big of teeth my children have. <laughs> right. If, if the only reason that you read that story was to dissect a mechanical object and to find the gears and the sprockets and to see to what's going to happen, what is going to happen, then it's a dumb story. But that's not how you. Yeah, and it. if you listen to, I, I don't know what it was, childhood influential books. What I say there about Goosebumps is that it taught me. Goosebumps books taught me to care just about figuring out what the twist is before it happens. Yeah, because like, that's the only fun to be that's had. That's the only fun to be had is to figure out the twist. Totally not the point. <laughs> but yeah, Goosebumps were a long, long, lame buildup to a twist that didn't really usually deliver very much. Right. Or just relied on sort of cheap ex machina supernatural stuff. To like, it was actually real. Like, the mask actually possessed him. You're like, ah. <laughs> Great. Cool story. Let's not read another one of those. (laughs) Well, it's so far downstream. He's just ripping off everybody else's great ideas and repackaging them really cheaply for kids. And he's focusing on everybody else's twists. (laughs) And it it might work for a 10-year-old because it's their first time like with that particular mechanic. And so there's just seeing a mechanic. It did in that sense for me. But then again, it was also like you had to pick a book from Scholastic (laughs) and you wanted to pick, you were a boy and you didn't want those Sweet Valley High books. You didn't want Sweet Valley High and you didn't want Babysitter's Club or whatever it was. We all did Goosebumps is what we did. Genius marketer. Not a good author. Anyway, the... The the town where no one got off. The town where nobody got off. 
So as distinct from goosebumps, a couple of salesmen riding a train, having a conversation. Traveling salesmen appear in a lot of brave in a lot of Bradbury stories. You know that kind of itinerant life. You're moving around. You're away from your family. You're away from your home. You're in places where nobody knows you. That question of how anonymity affects our behavior is major today. A lot of what's nasty on the web is because of anonymity. People say things when they're anonymous that they would never say in person, and they do things when they think they're anonymous that they would never do if they knew that they were being watched. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, hashtag NSA, we're always being watched. But right. um, so these two salesmen are talking and one of them says, you know, I think I'm just going to get off the train. Town where nobody knows me. There's got to be something happening there. What's What town's coming up next? Rampart Junction? I guess I'll get off there. And the other guy's like, well, I mean, we're just we're just talking. Like, you're not really going to get off there, are you? And he stands up. He's like, you're really going to get off there? And he picks up a suitcase. And the second sales, sales guy's like, I think you're actually going to do it. <laughs> and he says, wish me luck. And the second guy yells, luck! Luck! He's <laughs> off the train at Rampart Junction. And he gets off in this quiet town. And there's a man sitting on a chair at the platform who looks like he's been nailed there. He's just there, like he's part of the place. And that description of him, his timbers looked as if he'd been nailed there since the station was built. An old guy, white hair, leathery tanned skin, faded clothes, just sitting there in a chair, leaned back against the station wall, just just waiting. And Bradbury describes the old man sort of seeing him, not really looking at him, but it says there was a, a sudden coloring of his secret eyes, a chemical change that was recognition. Yet he had not twitched so much as his mouth, an eyelid, a finger. An invisible bulk had shifted inside him. And Bradbury, there's, there's a very similar thing in the city where it describes the lens, the side of a building shifting and looking at the men. And one of the men sees it. He's like, that window just, just changed. And everybody looks at it and they're like, well, I don't see anything. But that way in which Bradbury describes things that are happening underneath the surface, changes and motion and understanding, it's very much like touch with fire. Like when, yeah. when the murderee meets the murderer and there's this unspoken, unconscious connection. That's exactly what's happened here. It's the murderee and a murderer, but we're not sure who's who. Mm-hmm. And so the guy gets off the train, he goes walking through the town, and throughout the rest of the day, the old guy from the platform is always near, sort of following him around. And really, it is a town where nothing's happened. Like, he, he was, he's, he keeps thinking, there's got to be something, you know? Well, there's ants walking in the dust, or there's a kid drinking a soda at the soda fountain, there's kids getting home from school, but, like, nothing's happening. Nobody talks to him. Until finally, it's dusk, and he's walking, the old guy comes up to him, and they have a conversation. And it's pleasantries at first, until the old guy says, I've, I've been waiting for you. And the sales guy says, for me? He's like, well, you or somebody like you. I've been waiting, waiting for, I wasn't quite sure what, but I knew that when I saw it, I would know. And that, that's also, that's T.S. Eliot, that's C.S. Lewis, that's, that's this underlying theme of not really knowing what it is you're looking for, but knowing when you see it, mm-hmm. you'll recognize it. Touching something deep in us that's, that's unconscious, that's undefined, that really connects with me. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm hungry for that. Mm-hmm. And I think we're all hungry for it in a way that we, we, we want to believe that there are things that are so real that have gotten covered over, papered over, obscured by all the other stuff in our life. But when we actually run into them, we'll know. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we do. Like I've, I've had experiences where, I, where something happened or I met somebody or, or went someplace and, and it just connected to something. And I was like, whoa, I was not expecting that. I did not see that coming. At the most basic level, like what's it going to be like when we see the Lord? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When all that stuff, my business, my home, all my friends, all the things I've collected, all the songs I've played, everything, when all that's gone, what's it going to be like to see? And there's a scene in a movie, and I cannot remember what it was, which is unusual for me. (laughs) It's this scene of a person seeing things. Like, everything's stripped away for a moment, and they see, and they just start crying. The way you're describing it reminds me of the end to Anna Karenina. She knows she's going to go kill herself, and she thinks she sees things differently. She sees everybody sort of in slow motion on the way. She suddenly sees, yeah, beneath the facade. That's the... Or so she... Well, it's interesting that you're... There's the light side of it and there's the dark side of what you're talking about. And Bradbury is actually tapping into the dark side of that. Yeah. Is when you, fi- when you find that thing 
or run into that thing suddenly possess self-knowledge about yourself that is deep and dark and forbidden and that civilization and your own politeness and your own fears paper over for your whole life and then suddenly something clicks and you realize you're capable of something and you desire something. When Fox realizes... I would murder her. Right. I would murder her. Mm-hmm. Yep. I've actually not read Anna Karenina, but the the question, the the conflict of adultery is in literature all over the place. And I think I know, you know any any man who thinks that he couldn't commit adultery is an idiot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the idea that we go through life often protected from certain sins because God protects us from the opportunity mm-hmm. for the sin. And if the opportunity were there, we would sin. Right. John Owen maybe not famously, but it ought to be famous, points out that every motion of your heart towards sin would be the full-on thing if the opportunities and circumstances were right. Every every lust, every desire, everything, when you give yourself in over to that, it would be adultery if it could. Yep. Well, I think that's why people love stories like this, because not everybody's read John Owen, but everybody has a sense that they're but for the grace. I mean, everybody has a built-in sense that they know I could be an adulterer, not just an adulterer, but a murderer, an all-devouring, all-self-loving creature that is within me. And it is only the constraints that God places on me. Whether I'm Christian or pagan, it's only the constraints that God places on me that protect me from this. And that's what these stories tap into on some visceral level for people. And I think that's why a lot of people that aren't Christians, that don't un- even un- begin to understand it, respond to things like this, like things like this, because it's tapping into to a real and scary and powerful feeling that they have that they can't quite put their finger on, which is that, you know, when you strip away the veneer of politeness and of civilization and of what I what I have to do to get by on a day-to-day basis, I am a monster. Yep. On a current events, you know, kind of level, I think we're entering a period of time where a lot of the politeness social facade that holds our society together is being chipped away and is cracking through in ways that it had not in a long, long time. And we live in generally a very civilized, very polite society. Mm-hmm. But that's not the common experience of most people throughout the world in most times. Our generally law-abiding polite society is kind of an aberration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And aberrations are aberrations because they come for a time and then go away. Right. Um, well, and every time a big tragedy happens, people manage to be so shocked by it. Everyone on some level, whether they admit to it or not, must think there's nothing to be shocked about. This guy is just me. And that's what I think these kinds of stories get at. I mean, we all know, Romans 1, we all know that we are depraved and we can paper over it. We can spend our whole life papering over it. So the question of like coming to a decision or coming to an opportunity, coming to a circumstance, one of my favorite films is No Country for Old Men. Mm -hmm. And I actually like the movie better than the book. I do too. The main reason being that it's more stripped down. A lot of the stuff that is in the book helps you understand the characters, but it also kind of blunts some of the situations in the story because there's so much other stuff. I think the primary example of that is the wife's death is so powerful in the movie and in the book it just goes on and on and on and it, yeah. it goes over making the point. Yeah, um, but uh, the actor who plays Anton Chigurh, Javier Bardem, there was another movie called The Counselor, which I think, is it also Cormac McCarthy or is it Coen Brothers? He, he wrote the script, yeah. Okay, um, I haven't seen the movie. I saw the preview. Don't bother, by the way. But, okay, yeah. good to know. <laughs> Time saved. Cross it off the list. But Michael Fassbender plays a lawyer who gets involved in drug dealing mm-hmm. with Javier Bardem. They're buying stuff from Mexico. They're not dealing on the street. They're just financing. And the deal goes bad and people get killed and the whole thing falls apart, apparently. But Javier Bardem is talking to Fassbender. They're sitting on a couch a couch, and, and uh, Bardem's character says, Counselor, uh, you will come to moral decisions that will take you completely by surprise. But the emphasis is on, but you've already chosen them. You just didn't know it. When uh, in No Country, before he uh, before he shoots Woody Harrelson's character, he says, you know, if the road you were on brought you to this, what good was the road? Everything you've picked, this was contained in that initial choice. Mm-hmm. You didn't know it, or you didn't admit it to yourself. You didn't think it through. But when you picked that, the guy who goes to rob the bank and ends up in a shootout and murdering three people, and it's like, I didn't want to kill anybody. When you picked this, it was in there. Mm-hmm. Everything was contained. Yep. Um, and those kind of choices are frightening when they're evil, but also unbelievably sweet when they're good. Mm-hmm. And the twist in this story 
is not so much about you as the reader experiencing the twist, but you as the reader experiencing a character experiencing the twist. Mm-hmm. Um, so the old guy comes up and they're, they're talking and the old man says to the salesman, you know, I've been thinking my whole life, I'm old. Uh, you ever think about your head, what goes on in your mind, how you, you know, might want to hurt people or maybe kill them. And the salesman says, well, I think everybody, you know, thinks that kind of thing from time to time. And the old guy says, well, I've been thinking that stuff for a long time. I've been salting down bodies in my head packing that away between my ears. He's like, some guys get to go to war or do something like that and let them work off a load of that stuff, but not me. So I've been thinking, you know, I retired maybe 20 years ago and I've been sitting on the train platform thinking maybe sometimes somebody would get off. Somebody I didn't know, who nobody knew, who had no reason to be here, just a stranger would just get off the train and maybe I'd kill him and dump him in the river. And they'd never find out it was me, that no connection to Rampart Junction, they had no reason to be here, wasn't going here. You know, I've been I've been thinking about I've been thinking about doing that. And he reaches out and touches the salesman's arm. It's like the sales guy says, you know, his his hand was hot, feverish. You know, the imagine the feeling of like the phrase the blood was singing in your ears. Mm-hmm. You know, anytime you do as a performer, the time I get the most blood singing in my ears is like right before you go on the stage for something. Especially if it's high stakes, you haven't done it before, it's scary. Like, you know, your your heart rate's up, your pulse is pounding, like you hear things differently, you see things differently, everything's intense at this point. And then the twist is the salesman says, you know what? I I got off the train because salesman bad, my wife is sick, and I thought it might do me good to get off in a town where nobody knew me and find somebody I didn't know and kill him and bury him and get back on the train and go back to my life. And you're not sure if he's bluffing and the old guy isn't sure if he's bluffing. And then you get a little peek inside the sales guy's head and he says, I realized right then, it's first person, Mm -hmm. I realized then that everything I'd said was not a lie to save my life. Everything I had just said was true. Mm -hmm. So the old guy and the salesman experienced the twist at the same time, which is they're both trying to kill they both want to commit murder. They think they've found the murderee in the other. Two predators have found each other. And then they're at an impasse. You know, the old guy's got his hand in his pocket and the sales guy says, I've got a gun under my coat. And neither one's sure like, right. you know, what's going to happen? They want to go, they go their separate ways. They do go their separate ways. Nobody gets killed. Mm-hmm. Yet the sales guy puts out a flare at the train station to stop on the next train. He gets back on the train. And as he's driving away, the old guy is back on the platform, sitting in his chair yeah. at midnight, waiting for the next person who's going to get off. Mm-hmm. And so you get the sense that neither one of them has changed and neither one is embarrassed or apologetic at all. But each of them just was a brush with death and had a brush with death. I love those stories. I love these kinds of stories, particularly and, and particularly in the fantasy or dark fantasy or horror or sci-fi genres. I just think it's, I think the, the, the stories of sudden self-knowledge and then what do you do with it are always interesting and fun to think about. And the point of the story is that you walk away and you think, well, what would I do? There's a movie, which I've not seen, I've only read about it, about a father and his family that are vacationing in the Alps or something like that. And there's some there's snow that com- comes down. Yeah, force majeure. Yeah, have you seen it? No. Nope. I've not seen it. But the conceit is that it looks like there's going to be a huge avalanche. It's coming at them. And the dad runs. He leaves his family. And then it turns out to be nothing. It's just something that looked like it was going to be bad. But he's his family and him suddenly have to live with the knowledge that he didn't protect his wife and yeah. his kids. No, he, when the threat came, he totally panicked. He bailed. Right. And it's a nice conceit for a movie. I don't know whether it's a good movie. It might be a terrible movie. For You're not married, are you? I'm not. It's a wretched conceit. It's miserable. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's terrifying. I, I, uh, <laughs> Those kinds of things are terrifying. Somebody, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Somebody shared, in, uh, I guess, on Facebook or something. You know how people do YouTube pranks? Mm-hmm. Yep. They did this exact kind of prank to people. Oh, that's awful. And it was, and it was the wife or the husband or the boyfriend or the girlfriend setting up the other. And see. it was the, oh. it was various scenarios, and it was are they going to fight or are they going to run when there's a sudden threat? Somebody jumps out of the bushes to kill you, or a bear jumps out of the bushes. It was a whole bunch of circumstances like that, and I didn't know what it was when I started watching it. But man, I hated it. I turned it off really quick. Oh, it was yeah. just so unfair. Kind of thing makes me sick to my stomach. Well, that's a that YouTube kind of thing where you put somebody in a position to fail. I say yeah. break up with that person well, because they set you up for the thing. It's it's like the Canterbury Tales, Chaucer. Um, I think it's the clerk's tale about the nobleman who marries a common girl and she's like, you know, impeccable quality of character. Everybody loved her and he decides to test her. And so he decides to put their child to death. 
but secretly actually sends him away to be raised elsewhere, but makes everybody think that the child was killed. And then they have a daughter and he puts that child to death, but sends her away secretly. And then, you know, 16, 17 years later, he tells his wife he's going to divorce her and take a new bride and invites this beautiful young princess from some faraway kingdom to come, puts his wife out of the castle, takes her clothes, puts her in rags, sends her back to the hovel she grew up in and brings back this princess who's actually his daughter and he's planning this big reunion. And it's just like, are you insane? Like what? You've tortured your wife for almost 20 years. You've made her think, you've made her think you murdered her children. All, all to test her to prove. And at the end, I mean, she passes every test. Flying colors. She's Yay. wonderful. And he brings her back. He's like, you're the greatest wife ever. And it's just like, what? You're the worst husband. <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, and that that kind of idea, it'd be like a it'd be like a, a husband or a wife, a husband putting his wife in a position to commit adultery just to see if she'll pass. Yeah. And it's like, if you if she passes, if she doesn't sin, or if a wife put her husband in that position and he passed and didn't sin, the, the spouse that set it up has destroyed the trust. Mm-hmm. And if if the spouse that was set up fails and falls into sin, they've destroyed. It's just like there is no it's upside. Lose, There's lose, no lose. upside. Yep. Win or lose, you lose. Mm-hmm. So that kind of stuff is totally crazy. Well, it does it is it does make you want to live the kind of life such that if an avalanche comes, you run and you protect your wife. And if an old man says he's been waiting to murder you, you do not suddenly find yourself with the desire to murder him. Yeah, there's there's no there's no reason why the story couldn't have ended up plausibly with the old guy dead and not have it be murder. Right. If somebody comes to you and like, you know what, I've been thinking for a long time about killing somebody and then you came along. Right. You're like, okay. <laughs> Whoa. Luckily, I know Kung Fu or whatever it is. Um. MMA is the latest thing. MMA. Some kind of mixed up martial arts. But at the end of that story, you know, the the sales guy gets on the train, he's driving away and he spends a couple hours, you know, he says, for an hour, I stood in the roaring blast, leaning out the window, staring back at all that darkness. And that darkness isn't just like, it's nighttime, Mm -hmm. but looking back at himself, looking back at the old man, just looking into the darkness of all that. It's reflective, but it's not hopeful. I enjoyed the twist in this story more than I have enjoyed the twist in many other Bradbury stories because I think it's an interesting twist. And I I remember when I first read it, not necessarily seeing exactly what was going to happen. I didn't fully predict the twist. Mm -hmm. But realizing that I was getting to watch two characters experience the twist, Mm -hmm. and it was a twist to both of them, that structural part of the story interested me. I enjoyed that. So That's interesting because I, I enjoy the characters and I like how it plays as a character piece. Didn't dig the twist. Well, I just don't like the mechanics of that twist. I've always hated that twist and everything. Just like the, there's a vampire stalking a young girl the whole time. And turns out she's a super vampire. Yeah, she, yeah she's a werewolf. I hate that twist more than any <laughs> twist <laughs> of all cheesy, goosebumpsy, Twilight zone twists. That's my least favorite. Besides, it was all a dream. That's the number one dumbest twist. But you know that happens in nature. What? Oh, the predator is the prey is the... Yeah. Sure. Doesn't make it a good... Doesn't need to happen in my stories. But this is a good story. I mean, I'm glad that... I'm glad he went with that twist in the story because it's not just mechanics. It's these characters and it's what they discover about themselves. Yeah. Um, Self-discovery is a big thing in Bradbury. The story of the Blue Bottle, which almost made my top five for this, is about a guy trying to find a thing he's been looking for his entire life. And the self-discovery is when he finds what he when he finally finds what he's looking for, what he really wanted was to be gone. He wanted to be dead. He wanted to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be annihilated. But not everybody wants that. Some other character also finds the same thing. And for him, it's a bottle of bourbon. He wanted a drink. So I like the way in which a lot of Bradbury characters discover things about themselves. But for me, the one thing is I just enjoy the writing because it's so the sounds and the smells and the tastes and the texture of everything very... He's very alive. Well, I want to ask one question then before we get done, because that's I hear you talk uh, that way and you talk the same way about an author that we are going to be discussing next month on The Bookening, and, and you don't like it when he does it. Okay. Stephen Milhauser. Okay. So what's the difference in your mind between the two? Okay, so my experience with Stephen Milhauser is just short stories. I've not read any of his novels. I know you guys are doing Martin Dressler. What I dislike about the way Milhauser does it, I feel more self-conscious of Milhauser deliberately manipulating me when I read. You feel used. Uh, yes, and there's also a way in which 
I thought about this earlier when you were talking about the illusionist or the uh, yeah the sleight of hand the sleight of hand guy. I was like, yeah, so, that's, we actually had that same conversation about Milhauser. My first experience with Milhauser was at the Runcible Spoon in Bloomington. I was there for breakfast alone, and I pulled a book down off a shelf. It was an anthology of short stories, and I opened up at random and found Stephen Milhauser's The Knife Thrower. Nice, yeah. and was captivated over my pancakes. Mm. <laughs> um, How could you not be? But. There's Bradbury makes me feel uncomfortable things, but he never he never takes it to a perverse place. Bradbury tells stories because he enjoys telling stories. I think Milhauser writes the way he writes because he likes twisting people. And I think that there's something kind of there's something kind of invasive. I don't want to call it predatory, but the same way you can tell you can tell a child something they they shouldn't know for the enjoyment of being the one that like open their mind to that yep. in a way. And that that can be, you know, the, the delight of opening a child's mind to something they didn't know as a constructive and a good thing is wonderful. That's the joy of being a teacher is getting kids to see and understand things they did not see or understand. And it it's amazing. It's so rewarding. But there's also, there is a delight in corrupting people. Mm-hmm. And there's a delight in in being the one who shares knowledge that shouldn't be shared. And I, when I read Milhauser, and it's, it's not in every story, but in some stories, I just think he's enjoying trying to push people's buttons. Toying with people, yeah. He's enjoying pushing people into... Pushing a, me, the reader. Yeah, but he's not, he's not doing it personally to me. He doesn't care about me. He's doing it to his readers. This story is crafted in such a way as to put a reader someplace where they should not want to go. And Milhauser's doing that without their consent. It's like some comics tell jokes because they find the world funny and enjoyable and they want you to laugh about it too. And other comics tell perverse jokes because they enjoy hurting their audience. And I, I don't trust Milhauser. Ray Bradbury is kind of like a crazy uncle. He might do something dangerous and off the wall, like, here, hold this, hold this bottle rocket. And you're like, whoa. But Milhauser does things that are in that are intentionally dangerous. So for you, it really comes down to to trust. Uh, Bradbury may be the crazy uncle, and he may put a bottle rocket in your hand, but it, he's got good intentions. Yeah, he, he I, may be. He may have been dumb to put the bottle rocket in your hand, but I don't. I don't ever feel like Bradbury is getting his jollies at your expense. from from putting me in a dangerous situation on purpose. Hmm. And I feel like morally, emotionally, mentally, Milhauser actually is writing for the enjoyment of pushing his audience to places they don't want to go or shouldn't go. He knows he has the power and it, he gets a kick out of the exercise of the power. Yeah, you know, he's he's doing it not for the delight of the audience enjoying the ride. He's doing it for his reasons. Bradbury's telling me stories because he enjoys stories and wants me to enjoy stories. Milhauser is is playing with his audience in a self-serving way that I I really don't like. He's a cat playing with a mouse. Yeah, it just it's dark. And I understand that authors often write no author can write something he can't understand mm-hmm. in a sense you can't create a character that you can't imagine right but you can write a character whose motives are kind of inscrutable to you that's you know you can do that i just don't i don't trust millhauser that's interesting that's a good teaser for uh next week folks we'll start talking about the good old stephen millhauser thanks for having me on guys it's been a pleasure yeah thanks yeah. for coming it's been a it's pleasure fun. having you known as me. I have forgotten to record an outro for this episode. I did in fact forget when first we put mouth to mic with Andrew Henry. And so cursed be the day I came forth from my mother's womb and a curse, a fire pox, a curse upon the fumbling fingers with which I deleted the outro we later recorded during a session of Sound of Sanity. Well, is me well the only recourse now left to my weary soul 
is to record a silly outro on my laptop, and that is a consummation which I cannot... Nay, I will not endeavor to bring to twisted fruition. And so this episode must venture forth into the light. Outrowless, naked, and alone. Whoa! Whoa! Whoa!